And she said to me, Callie, it's about profound change. That's what's going to stop you having to be here again. I said, I've made some changes. You know, I work four days a week now, not five. And, you know, I do mindfulness on a Saturday morning. She said, no, profound change. And I said, what does that mean? She said, work out what that means for you and you'll start to have some of the answers about how to help yourself through the next one of these. And, it, and I will never forget those two words, profound change. And I would say anybody listening who's going through some massive kind of emotional struggle, it, it is about thinking in those terms um, and getting wrapping your head around the fact that little not on the dial stuff might not be enough. Welcome to series five of the How To Be Sad podcast with me, Helen Russell. This is a show about how getting sad and learning to embrace all of our emotions could be the key to a happier life. And each week I'll be joined by a special guest sharing their own experiences of how to be sad well. Callie Beaton was working as a senior TV exec until age 45, the late great Joan Rivers suggested she try stand-up. She did. And now a successful comedian, you'll have seen her on shows like QI or The Apprentice, You're Fired, Callie's out to challenge the ageism she still sees around her in the industry. An industry Callie admits she was part of creating. She worked on MTV's The Real World, one of the first reality shows back in the 90s, and then later on Geordie Shores and X on the Beach. Callie says now, it's fair to say I was a big part of the problem now biting me in the arse. So Callie, lovely to be chatting today. Tell me more about the problem. Yeah, so I think um, one of the things that's interesting in television, and I can now say having crossed over from behind the scenes to on camera, is that it isn't just about wanting people to have a certain look. It doesn't always have to be that someone's got to be whatever traditionally would be classed as good looking, but a kind of clear defined look. And to some extent, you could say, well, that's a visual medium, that's fair enough. But it is definitely true. And remember, I did work for Viacom, CBS for many years, and all of their brands are young, you know, Comedy Central, MTV, Nickelodeon. So I was working at the sort of young end of the scale as well. But it is fair to say that when I was behind the scenes, it didn't particularly occur to me that if we were looking at diversity and inclusion, it should also include age. I think we were thinking of it from every other angle. And I probably would have said to you, if you'd said to me four years ago, do you think the industry is ageist? I'd, I would probably have said no. And I probably would have said, well, there just aren't that many people who are older wanting to do these things. You know, they don't put their hat in the ring. I now realise that's because they don't get as far as even being in the position to put their hat in the ring. So yes, I'm now on the other side of the camera experiencing the fact that it, there are barriers to entry one of which is age and and i mean you've you've done qi you've done the apprentice you're fired you have we have seen you on our screens you look fantastic i mean that shouldn't be the point but do you think that there are lots of people who aren't getting on do you work with people on the circuit for example who aren't getting those opportunities to be on camera i definitely do yes i definitely do i mean interestingly last night i won't name the comedian but i was on uh, an all-female bill brilliant gig uh, that we were doing and it was, it's called Laughing Labia. So there you go. <laughs> so, nice. And I won't be, it won't pinpoint who it was because people won't know when we recorded this and it's a regular night. But one of the acts there who's in her 40s and she's incredibly talented, really clever, does so many interesting things around her comedy. She can't even get an agent, let alone get 
on screen and it, she must just be invisible to she doesn't she's not as a clear proposition in terms of her look her I, I can imagine people in media going oh I can't quite work out where you'd place her but at the end of the day she's incredibly clever and incredibly funny and would add such rich content to things and we were watching some sort of younger comics one in particular who's signed to one of the biggest agents in the country and she just said it just I'm delighted for this person that she signed to them but I just why can't I even get any kind of a break so there definitely are people my age who are having it harder than I'm having it I also do sometimes think well am I you know I'm as insecure as anyone about how I look but I do really try to sort of keep on top of my weight you know my haircut that I've got a clear brand that I, I you know drink enough water that my skin looks all right I'm really I am preoccupied with it when I go on screen because I I'm not trying to pretend I'm younger everyone knows my age I'm very honest about it but I suppose yes I am slightly trying to look younger and so again I, I'm still part of the problem. And you, and you talk about visibility and feeling invisible. Can you talk us through what prompted your Edinburgh show pre-COVID, pre-lockdowns, about this comment, this French guy, about the invisible women? Yeah, I mean, it was brilliant. Anyone who's listening, if you didn't know about it, have a Google of sort of what happened, because it was, it, I mean, talk about, you know, a, a beautiful use of social media. The backlash was brilliant and clever and wonderful from uh, women my age. But uh, the, yeah, it's a B-list French celebrity by the name of Yann Moi, who made global headlines in 2019 when he said basically that he, he's 50, he would not date a 50-year-old woman. Women at 50 are invisible. The body of a 25-year-old woman is extraordinary, but there is nothing extraordinary about the body of a 50-year-old woman, um, among many other things. He was then bombarded on social media with pictures of kind of hot 50-something women's arses, cleavages, until he had to sort of plead for the people to stop it. Yeah, and it just meant, and that was... That was the year I went full time as a comedian. So until that point, I'd been juggling the boardroom and comedy. So I was sort of boardroom by day, comedian by night. Um, and that's what all comedians do. They all have a, a real job. Um, it's very rare people don't have to be supporting their comedy with something else. So there's nothing special about me doing that. But it was the year that I decided to take the plunge. And it was the year I turned 50. And I just thought, you know, we'll see about that. So yes, I, I came up with the show Invisible. And it was the biggest show I'd done, went up to Edinburgh, made a kind of decent splash with it. And I think for me, it was about, it's not really necessarily, it doesn't matter if it's about age or not. I don't think anyone likes to be misunderstood. And I don't think anyone likes to be underestimated. And I think each of us will decide what our limitations are and what we'd like to do and where we'd like to be in the world. So for me, it was much more of a, you know, I, I shall decide how much in the spotlight I am. So it wasn't, um, yeah, it wasn't a sort of arrogant thing of like, I'm really worth looking at. It was more, I'm going to work this out myself. So yeah, so the show was about, um, was about being invisible, but it was also about invisibility as a superpower. And I love the idea of that, which is if people underestimate you, I often have this at gigs. I'll turn up at a gig. I'm not the typical gigging demographic. There are women my age doing comedy. Many of them have been going much longer than me, so they're na big names. And I've had it frequently that I'll turn up and people on the door will assume I'm not a comedian backstage I may get underestimated if people haven't seen me 
And I just love the capacity with no pressure then to overachieve because if people just think, well, you're going to be useless um, and then you go on and just show them what you can do. And I think there's something um, I, I used to joke in the Edinburgh show, but I stopped doing it because people took it quite literally about the fact that, you know, if you want someone to shoplift something, get a middle aged woman to do it because nobody will think you've done it. You could pretty much pick something up off the shelf in boots, smile nicely, walk out and they'd be like, well, you, you're definitely not a shoplifter. Um, and that's kind of true. So um, not that I'm using the super power to steal don't steal kids but uh, I think there is something about invisibility if you think it's it's one of the most wished for superpowers isn't it so I um, you know well, I'd like to fly I'd like to be invisible so I think there's a power in it as well that's an interesting reframing I wonder making the transition into comedy full-time at 50 and you talk about having a real job as well but I would I would hazard that most performers do not have the real job who as being you know a vice president in a massive media organization that's quite a serious real job to be having what were the stress levels like what what made you decide actually I'm going to give up that nice steady decent income yeah, it's a really good question. And I did also do it right before the pandemic. So I probably was asking myself a few more probing questions six months later than I might have been, were it not for a certain virus. But well, first things first, I would say that a lot of comedians, if you're working, you know, in a supermarket, or you're working in a call centre, or you're working for somebody, you know, you're, you're not a senior in a company and don't have as much autonomy, that could be much harder than what I went through so if you've got a boss who will not let you leave on time has no sympathy for what you're doing you, you could be very out of control of your own destiny so first things first I was very privileged because at least I was at a sort of senior level and I absolutely had to put the hours in but there was nobody breathing down my neck saying you know where are you going I, I mean I never did finish before about six thirty or 7 at night but no one was really asking what I was doing it was just up to me to get the job done I think the pressure people people think the pressure was the amount of hours a day I was working because I would I'd put in a really long day at the office and then I'd literally sit at my desk getting my makeup on learning my set or writing some stuff and then I'd go straight to a gig the hardest thing and by then my kids were old enough that I, I could they didn't really need much sort of care they were late teenagers which is partly why it took me so long to do stand up I because I, I was a single mum and I, I couldn't get the child care to be out gigging every night it would have been a bit unfair on them the biggest challenge, and I think anyone listening can relate to this, because if you think about what our roles are in the world, you know, you're a writer, you're a mother, you're a wife, you're... If you think about all those roles, the, one of the biggest challenges, I think, in terms of balance is managing the transition between the roles. So we all have it to a degree, don't we, when you're sort of having a row with your partner and then your kid wants something and then the dog needs walking and then your mum needs to talk to you and you're like, I can't do all of this. And that was the biggest challenge, was shedding the skin of one role in the world and becoming the next role uh, often with only the journey between the two to manage it so that was definitely a pressure I think and also by day I was trying to be infallible um, as you are when you're on the board of a massive media company they don't want you to be vulnerable and I was pretending I wasn't even though I massively was underneath it all and then on stage, you need to show chinks in the armour. That's the routine for the audience. No one wants a sort of smug comedian who's like, aren't I beautiful, successful and wonderful? I mean, that's not at all hilarious. So I got used to on stage kind of showing my vulnerability and being kind of more honest about things, albeit then writing them in a different direction. And at work, it, I was I was kind of putting on a much more glossy facade. So that was that was a big challenge. And I think it did have a massive impact on my mental health. I think... Um, I've never been, this is going straight into sort of heavy territory, but 
I got very depressed in my late 40s, which was at the time I was doing both comedy and the job in the boardroom. And I just think what it was, was that I started to find out who my authentic self was on stage. And it, I'd hidden it for so many years. I'd masked so successfully for so long. And it was just like the whole thing started to come tumbling down because I, there was this whole real me coming out. And then it wasn't that I had an existential crisis of who was the other one. It was just like, I think it was a relief. I felt almost like a PTSD level of, oh God, I can let the guard down. And what would life be like if I could just be this person? So I, it did have a really profound effect on me. I will say now, very much for the good. But at the time, I mean, terribly frightening and, and you know, devastating and, and scary. Yeah. That's quite a cognitive dissonance, living those two lives. Are you, are you quite brave generally? No, well, I mean, in theory, you'd, I had again a bit of this in my show um, about, you know, jumping out of planes and off bridges. And I, I, you know, I have, I've done, I've done all those kind of, I've got a motorbike license. I've done all the traditionally sort of scary things. But no, I don't, I don't think I am brave. I think that I've, I think I'm driven by some sort of massive insecurity and also need for chemicals to get me through things. So I'm definitely an adrenaline junkie. But I wouldn't say that's because I'm brave. I would say that perhaps I instinctively always combated what might have been a bit of depression or maybe quite a bit of depression with massive kind of highs when I was younger, sort of, you know, um, chemically induced by other things. And when I was older by, you know, just going for the kind of kicks. And I'm still a bit of a thrill seeker. But no, underneath it all, Helen... I, I don't know how you, you know, I, I watched your TED talk in wonder and thought, you know, what, and, and I've recommended it to loads of friends, all of whom have just, you know, you're, you're just about everybody, all my girlfriends, heroes. And watching you do that, I just thought, oh my God, you know, you're the real deal. When I do speeches like that, you might, if you watched it, say you're the real deal, but inside I'm always feeling massively, massively insecure. And when I'm on lineups with big names, particularly on the keynote speaking circuit, I always just think, oh, there's been a booking error <laughs> I shouldn't be here so I said yeah so it's multi-layered isn't it outwardly I probably look brave but no I, I don't think I am I, I probably am a bit more resilient than I used to think I am but I don't think I'd call myself brave isn't that depressing that the imposter syndrome never goes when will it go when we're 60 I don't know <laughs> well we all think each other we had this conversation when you came on my podcast which by the way was one of the most popular episodes we've ever had so you're a popular Aww. person but I know we had that we had a sort of imposter syndrome off didn't we <laughs> I was like but you're really really attractive and intelligent <laughs> and successful and you were like no you are uh, and we it doesn't sort of <laughs> it doesn't sink in to yourself but then maybe we'd be unbearable narcissists or psychopaths if we thought we were great yes, so maybe yes. we're not psychopaths <laughs> and that is to be to be credited. We failed yes, the true. psychopath test miserably, both of us. I yeah. think something to be proud of. <laughs> and, and I'm interested as well, you've talked about being in your 40s, the struggles then, and you're, you're trying to work out who you are, and then in your 30s, parenting. And single parenting, I've heard you talk about before on Samantha Bain's amazing podcast. How has that been for you? Well, I became a single parent when the kids were very young, so they were three and five, and... It's funny, I think with everything in life, if you look ahead and there are things you're really scared of and they often don't happen, you know, they say stress is a combination of things that may never happen and things you can't control. And I think if you sort of uh, took those two things out of the equation, you wouldn't feel much stress. 
Um, so logically, we can tell ourselves why do we feel stressed. But if I looked ahead and said, what's going to be difficult about this? Those weren't the things that really were difficult. I think probably the relentlessness of being a single parent, as anyone listening, that that's difficult. I think the guilt uh, is massive. You feel that you're denying your child something that maybe they need. You'll think, I mean, I did try to give them as many kind of other influences as I could. I was painfully aware with my son that he didn't have a male role model under the same roof. And I kept reading books about how boys at certain age really need male role models. And I was like, he doesn't like sport. There's no man who lives here. You can't just sort of put an ad out saying, could you be... <laughs> Could you be a male role model for my son? And he had amazing men in his in his life. You know, my dad, my brother, some friends. But so there was the guilt. And I think probably, I think because of my son, my son's autistic, as you know. And I think at the point at which that all was happening and, and we were going through, it took about two years to get him diagnosed. And he was, he was at 16 by the time he was diagnosed, just 16. And I think that was probably the kind of nearest I got to breaking point of parenting where I just felt so lost as parents who've got special needs kids will relate to um you know you get the diagnosis but you don't get any further help really or certainly you don't in this country and you have to seek out support and I think yeah so it's just feeling out of your depth and I think I think I'm a big believer of sharing your vulnerabilities and telling people what's difficult for you and, and the no prizes for like styling it out and acting like everything's great I never warm to people more <laughs> than when their life's a bit of a mess like mine but I do think there's something to be said. When you, when you are being a parent, you sort of do need to have the answers in the here and now, don't you? If your kid needs something, it's not really possible when it's you and two kids to go, do you know what, I'm just falling apart, I can't go. <laughs> I mean, that's not the moment. And then if you tell a friend at that point, well, what can they really do? Because you've still got to go home and look after the kids. When I had a spell in, just to tell you how sort of um, hard I found it to put my guard down and be honest with my, not be honest with my kids, but show them any kind of um, struggles I was having. I ended up with a, in a spell with where I had day treatment in a psychiatric hospital when I was 47, which by the way, I'm absolutely sure was also connected to perimenopause. And I wish people talked more about it. Cause I think, um, you know, we talk about sniper alley for men being in their fifties when they get all the kind of potentially really serious illnesses. And if they get out of that, they're okay. I think emotional sniper alley for women starts at 45 and goes on until at least 55 personally. But at that time, I so I was having, I wasn't sort of sectioned or anything. I, 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 was, I wasn't a residential patient, but I was having intensive treatment every day, you know, group therapy uh, all day, every day in a psychiatric hospital. And I used to just come home and my, I used to leave in the morning. The kids thought I was going to work and I'd come back in the evening and I would uh, help them with their revision at the time. One of them was doing GCSEs, the other one was doing A-levels. I'd help them with their revision. They'd go to bed. I would cry myself to sleep. I would get up the next day. I would do the same again. And I, d I don't think that makes me sound like a hero. I hope anyone listening goes, God, if I was in that position, I really, really hope I would find people around me at least to help me have a more authentic conversation or not have to put up that guard. So that's how much I felt that I didn't show kind of weakness to the kids so I think yeah it, it wasn't that it wasn't so much the kind of oh who's going to look after them because I've got an amazing network of friends and their dad is still you know involved in their life um, albeit from a little bit more from afar but it was all those emotional struggles which by the way I'm sure you as a you've got three kids haven't you Helen mm -hmm. I'm sure you as a as a parent of three and anyone listening with kids will go do you know what half of that just sounds very familiar as a parent so I don't know how much of it's single parent or just parent but I was going to say, I mean, the, I hear from a lot of people who have perhaps a child doing GCSEs and A-levels and that stress alone of having to try and parent a child doing one set of exams, let alone two at the same time, 
seems astronomical. If you're also going through a really tough time, it sounds like yourself, that that's a lot. Did you get the help that you needed? I did get phenomenal help, actually. And it's funny how people um people do step into the breach. Like I've always, my brother's older than me, and it's always but he's always had sort of he's only eighteen months older, but. I think emotionally, I've always felt like the older one. I've always sort of looked out for him more and perhaps had a slightly more easy, slightly more balanced kind of life. And he sort of swooped in and became my big brother in a big way, which was really touching at the time and and is still touching. My friends were absolutely incredible. and, And I had just the best emotional support from the psychiatric hospital. I will also say this, if anyone finds themselves in a psychiatric hospital or having help to the level I did, some of the best, most interesting, most wonderful people I've ever met in my life were other people going through what I was going through. I mean, I made friends for life who are just phenomenal people. So it definitely debunked any myth there might be about, oh, if you end up in that position, you're a lesser person. I met some incredible people. So yeah, I was really supported um, and really helped. And but, but it still felt like a big lonely struggle. And to this day, I haven't told the kids quite the degree to which that was all going on. I, I will do, but they don't know quite how bad it was, I don't think. What made things start to feel better? you know that that period of stress for the kids coming out of that and and the extent of the therapy yeah I think it was definitely therapy I had a really good psychiatrist I got onto the right medication I'd never taken any medication I'd I'd probably very ignorantly thought being quite against people taking medication um, for for mental health reasons and I look back at that and I'm sort of a bit you know a bit ashamed of myself really because I think well no one no one decides no one wakes up in the morning and says you know today I'm gonna go to the doctor and just get some antidepressants because that'll be such a fun day so by the time you get to that point you're you're kind of running out of options I do think they can be oversubscribed over prescribed but I I do think that they are much needed and, and and they have absolute merit so I got the right medication via a really good psychiatrist brilliant therapy group therapy I absolutely loved and and um, I wish I was still in group therapy. I'd, I'd like to be in it forever. Not all day, every day. And I think it was, I remember that somebody saying to me in the psychiatric hospital, because I had um, I had quite a big spell of feeling of really not being very well mentally, probably about six weeks. Then I went back to work in a slightly adapted way and then had another mini version. Like I had the sequel, you know, the sequel's never as good as the original. So I had the sequel, which didn't last as long and wasn't as bad, but wasn't great back in the same psychiatric hospital. And um, one of the therapists who still is my therapist, I don't see her all the time, but I do see her in sort of bursts still. And she said to me, Callie, it's about profound change. That's what's going to stop you having to be here again. I said, I've made some changes. You know, I work four days a week now, not five. And, you know, I do mindfulness on a Saturday morning. She said, no, profound change. And I said, what does that mean? She said, work out what that means for you and you'll start to have some of the answers about, how to help yourself through the next one of these and it and I will never forget those two words profound change and I would say anybody listening who's going through some massive kind of emotional struggle it it is about thinking in those terms um and getting wrapping your head around the fact that little not on the dial stuff might not be enough and the, the profound change might be daring to let your guard down and ask for help you know it might be more of a change in your approach rather than moving house and going and setting up a sort of um you know a, a, a riding school in you know in the middle of nowhere but it's I suppose it wouldn't make any money if it was a riding school in the middle of nowhere so it sounds lovely but um yeah so I think profound change that those were the two words that for me meant the world really that's wonderful and yeah, that's incredibly helpful. But I wonder when you are feeling at your most vulnerable, you kind of want someone to tell you what to do. 
don't you? I always think of that scene in in Fleabag where she asks the hot priest, just tell me what to do. <laughs> when you're feeling wobbly, that's hard to know what the next right thing is. And I didn't know. So that profound change did not come in a swoop. That It wasn't then that I had a Damascene moment of, oh, and I'll leave my job and I'll become a full-time comedian. It, I didn't really know quite what was going to happen, but I knew what was not possible anymore. So I always used to say I've worked, as you know, as an executive coach to the kind of great and the good in public life and politics and media um, over the years. And I always used to, a few things were fairly recurring with people, you know, everybody thought they were going to be found out. No one knew what they were doing. Everybody felt a bit trapped in a golden cage of sort of earning and profile and, and didn't really feel as happy on the inside as the outside. And most people thought they didn't have as many options as they'd like in order to make changes. And I think the biggest thing about... One of the most helpful things, and this, and I am the sole breadwinner, so I, I'm not saying this from a position of any privilege. I don't, no one's ever given me any money. No one ever will. I've got to earn it. But I did think if the only reason I'm staying in this boardroom is for the money and the security, then it's time to see if I could construct another way to have that, maybe on a lesser level. And I literally went and sat with my financial advisor. Once I worked out that money was perhaps and security was what was keeping me in the job, I sat down with um, a financial advisor at, at the time when I could afford to have a financial advisor. I know, I know, but that was when I had a proper job. You know, comedians don't have financial advisors or finances usually. Or finances. And, yeah. and I said to her, I'm really scared to leave. And, and she said, Look, let's just work out on your outgoings. What is it you need to earn? Like to cover your outgoings, you won't be contributing to a pension. There won't be any flab on the bone if something goes wrong in the roof and he's replacing on your house. But what is it? And when, when we came up with the figure that I needed to earn to survive, it was so much less than I was earning and I think when you you sort of move into the parameters of what you're earning so I know people who were earning way more than I was when I left that job and who still feel the need to keep earning more and they wouldn't say that they're avaricious people or, or kind of you know capitalists but it's a bit addictive and there's always the next bonus and the next this and if I just stay another two years I might get this so I think for me it was about being willing to do what I think I thought was failing which was maybe not earn very much money for a bit and give myself a couple of years to really not earn very much money if I needed it and and to think well worst case I'll sell everything I've got and me and the kids will be okay you know we might have to move out of London live somewhere really tiny but we will be okay we won't be homeless and we'll still love each other so what it was that was quite a profound change for someone like me who's always had to pay for everything that me and my family need but I mean most people listening will have those responsibilities so it isn't a kind of oh just leave the day job and do you know follow your dream Uh, we've all got to be practical but perhaps there are more options than we think I I always think that you know loads more about all this than me Helen but I always think the question to ask ourselves if we run out of options instead of what am I going to do is how how am I going to do it and if you start with the how and worry less about the what I think that gives you some very helpful clues about what your kind of wise mind knows you might like to do I think that's really inspiring advice yes about about thinking about your options and with your work as a coach I'm always fascinated were you able to apply the things that you would use uh, when you're helping other people were you able to apply them to yourself or is it like a sort of doctor heal thyself is it a bit difficult to it is a bit (laughs) to do it by yourself yeah it is I mean they say you teach what you most need to learn (laughs) there's a reason that I've spent my whole life trying to help people um, find balance and you know and, and sort of exercise their potential and stuff 
it really helps me and I do do some coaching still not a lot but I do do a bit of coaching in the media industry at sort of um again board level media executives so what would I know about that uh, so I do do a little bit of it and do you know what every time I think why am I doing it then I realize a I love it I do love it and I'm definitely not saying this to pitch for coaching clients I always have to turn people down but the thing I most love about it is that when you coach somebody else you get off the hamster wheel of your own life as they get off the hamster wheel of theirs. And together you're fully present for their where they're at. So all I'm doing is meeting someone where they need to be met. I'm fully present for them. I'm working live in the moment with them and we're trying to come up with things that will be helpful. But I always come out of it going, oh yeah, you know, there's that that thing we talked about that they were, and, and you literally do get brilliant sort of advice, not because I give brilliant advice, but, but but between us, you know, often because of the coaching client, some good stuff happens. But no, I'm, I'm my life is so, it's like when a girlfriend comes to you or, or a boyfriend, you know, male friend and says, you know, what should I do about this relationship? What should I do about my marriage? This is happening. You've got all the right advice. And then you go home and scream at your kids and kick the dog out of the, in the garden and, and it, you know, no hope at all. So now I, 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 my life is definitely a hot mess. <laughs> now I'm interested that you have also you've done a master's in neurolinguistic programming yes. or NLP how does that help you because I've read, sort of read mixed things about it and I've tried a little and yeah I, t- tell me how it helps you I'm not at all so NLP um, some people it was very kind of in wasn't it in the 90s and 2000s I'd say so that's when everybody was sort of into it it's got such a bad name, NLP. And the reason it's got a bad name is because it was taught in sort of kit form to people who were often really bad managers in their company would say, go and do some NLP. What it is, it's decoding. It's it's kind of decoding subjective behaviour. So it's looking at how you could reproduce excellent results. And if someone can do it, anyone can do it kind of thing. So how do you look at sort of human behaviour, how it's coded, how you might anchor helpful behaviour. And it's really a melting pot of all the approaches that preceded it. I think that NLP, I'm not evangelical about it. It's a thing that helps me in some ways with some situations without me even thinking about it anymore. The way in which NLP has most helped me, if I'm honest, Helen, is the little dog that you know I got two weeks ago, my 10-week-old puppy, Jeff. A load of stuff they teach you about is basically what in NLP we would call anchoring. So, you know, get the dog to want to respond to its name because you do this certain thing. Those responses, that is pretty... So I pretty much think the most I've ever consciously used NLP is to train a small pooing animal (laughs) it's dog training it's essentially dog training (laughs) it's basically dog training but I did to be fair get funded at the time I was on the board of ITV and I'd ended up um because I'd sort of sold a production company that got bought by ITV and I went from being a sort of creative executive to a board member very quickly and I was very lonely and and sort of I was the only woman on the board and I felt totally out of my depth and I'd lost all the stuff I loved, which was managing a team and interaction. And I I asked to go on the course because I wanted to do something that was to do with human connection and communication. So they paid for me to do everything up until my master's and then I left and did my master's. So I actually, it for me, it was about reconnecting with being a human being instead of a sort of a, a money bot in a boardroom. <laughs> so yeah, but I would, I'm not evangelical about it and lots of people listening will hate it and that's totally fine. I think for me, having worked on how to be sad and worked on different approaches to our emotions, the idea that if we just think hard enough or, or push negative thoughts away just seems quite unhelpful. But I know it works for so many people. I think it's, I also think people, because it's such a big subject, NLP, 
it can be conflated with many other things. So people take their version of it and then decide that's what it is. And I think it is so many different things. So what you've just described in a way is also a bit more like cognitive behavioral therapy in a way. And I did do a cognitive hypnotherapy qualification, which incorporated NLP. And actually, I thought that was at the Quest Institute I did with a guy called Trevor Sylvester, and I'm not on any kind of commission, but that was a very, very interesting thing. And I think cognitive hypnotherapy is an incredibly interesting form of therapy. I never fully qualified, so I don't, um, I don't offer that. But I thought that was really interesting. But I do think often it's helpful if you find a thing that helps you, it's helpful to think, to give it a name, isn't it? Um, and to go, it's this. But actually the thing that helps you, you know, whether it's NLP, you know, I did the Hoffman process that helped me massively, but the things that may have helped me might not be the thing someone else even took from that process. So I think you sort of learn what you're ready to learn, don't you, at that, at that moment. So, yeah, I, I would never push anyone to get into NLP unless they had an interest. But um, I was taught by a, a, someone called Sue Knight, who still is still going as a, as a you know lecturer and teacher. And hers was a very, it was the opposite of like a cynical toolkit version of NLP. It was very experiential, massively challenging in a good way and real self-development. So as much as anything, it was an incredible experience where I just learned a lot about myself and other people okay and you did the Hoffman as well I spoke to Emily Dean who's a big fan of yeah you you found it really helpful I did it because of Emily actually so um (gasps) I I Emily's been on my podcast as well and I read her book everyone died so I got a dog and I mean, actually, I'm basically aping her, aren't I? Because I've now done the Hoffman and I've got a dog. But yes, I'd be I'd signed up for the Hoffman two years in a row. And it's quite a weighty deposit and you lose it if you don't turn up. And both times I had then bailed at the last minute. They were really kind and let me roll over the deposit once. But the second time I bailed like three weeks ago, they said, we're going to have to we can't refund you the deposit. And then I listened listen to the audio version of Emily's book. And then I thought, I'm definitely doing it this year. And I called them and bless the Hoffman. They said, you know what, you, you paid your deposit we'll take it off and thank god I did Helen because I did it in December 2019 and actually they run it in a very different way now because it is very intense it's you're in a place together you're very much thrown in for eight days and it isn't quite the same I mean it's an amazing experience still from what I gather but I'm so pleased I did it that way so yeah it's I've got Emily Dean to thank for the Hoffman and the dog oh well done Emily I know what a hero good for her Yes, absolutely. And I wonder with with all that you've learned, how do you deal with tough times now? Are you do you feel able to find useful coping strategies when things aren't going well? I don't always manage to, but the things that help me, I know what helps me and I know what doesn't help me. So that's good. So on a, on a purely um, rational level, I know exactly what I could or couldn't do that would help, but I'm not always feeling mentally strong enough to do the right things, whatever they may be. The most important thing I've learned is to not fight it and to lean into it. And that doesn't mean wallow in it, doesn't mean, you know, pat it on the back and ask it to get kind of worse, but just to notice it. And instead of going, right, I've got to do do this massive speech, so I'm going to pull up my big girl's pants and tell myself I feel amazing. I, I actually go, okay, just, you know, you are going to have to try and do this, but you don't feel great right now. Just notice how you're feeling in your body, how you're feeling in your mind how could you sort of incorporate that and fold that into the experience you give the people in the room Um, because they might also quite like to know keynote speakers or comedians aren't always infallible so I think noticing it being honest about it and um, yeah and then you know I am quite into mindfulness I'm very into exercise and green spaces um, and I will say I'm only two weeks in but since I've had the dog well I haven't had time to feel depressed because I haven't slept (laughs) and I haven't sat down until I did this so but yes I do know the strategies and I at least try and apply some of them or forgive myself for applying none of them 
And so can you tell me about um, about growing up? How what, what sort of approaches to emotions was when the norm in your family when you were a child? I mean, this will be the clue to everything <laughs> that's happened since. So um, you may or may not know, and some of your listeners may or may not know that I went to a boys' school. Um, not only the reason I went to a boys' school is because we lived in the grounds of a boarding school, and it was a boys' boarding school, and so I was sent to that school. So if you think about a sort of <laughs> Venn diagram of not great for your mental health, uh, your parents are both teachers. You don't even get to live somewhere that's not the school and you are with a gender that is not your own and it was a boarding school in the 70s now I will say it was actually an amazing school and I think I owe that school a lot in terms of what I've gone on to do in my life so it was not an old-fashioned boarding school it was it was a very kind of progressive school but I think my parents had also both gone to boarding school I now know now that I obviously am an adult and relate to them differently that they and my mum actually also went to an all boys school, uh, boarding school, and her dad was the head teacher. And um, so, and my dad was went put in boarding school when he was seven, and his parents moved to um, what was then Rhodesia. So they both had massive sort of trauma attached to their schooling, and it wasn't I wasn't brought up in a loving household, but I just didn't. I think it was about not belonging. So from dot I didn't feel I belonged I didn't feel I belonged in my own family my family are all quite academic and they liked sitting reading books and I didn't and I just so yeah I think so I think I grew up with a massive conviction I didn't belong even over and above that I wasn't good enough that I just did not belong and I still don't think I belong I don't know where I belong and I don't and if I get real sadness it's about not belonging so yeah I think we were brought up um, as I say it was definitely a loving family but um, I just never was honest about what I was feeling really to and I felt totally out of my depth emotionally from most of my childhood and never ever ever would have admitted that even to myself at what stage were you able to admit that 47 and I'm only half joking (laughs) seriously I don't think I admitted to myself quite how difficult I found life until I was 47 and funnily enough my daughter um, who's now 22 was foraging through a sort of trunk full of um, old stuff you know we were getting out Christmas decorations or whatever and we were in the attic and there were these um, envelopes like Kodak you know photo envelopes and not and she has looked through like loads of photos we've got of them as kids and me as kids but we actually I hadn't even known these photos were there and they were photos of me at university and she was like absolutely you know obviously full on like look at your hair look at your, why are you dressed like that you know some of it she thought was cool because it was 80s and that's all come back hasn't it but most of all I was looking at those photos and I could see how unhappy I was and even the set of my jawline I looked I was beaming in every photo and I could see I did not feel the beaming smile I was showing and literally the shape of my my face has softened not just because with age but my jaws relaxed as I've got older and I just was tense so I'm only really half joking and I wasn't coping at all when I was at uni but it didn't occur to me to say to anyone I'm not coping I don't know what I'm doing I was just massively unhappy and took loads of drugs and drank too much and felt awful a lot of the time so so yeah I mean I'm laughing it isn't isn't funny is it we're doing what we do when we talk about sad things and and pretend they're glossy and hilarious (laughs) It was a hilarious story that I was depressed for 47 years. I didn't tell anyone. But yeah, I, I didn't, Helen. I didn't admit how, how hard I found life until I was in my 40s, even to myself. And what impact, you mentioned that your brother has became much closer when he sort of swooped in and took that big brother role. And you've talked a little bit about your, your former partner and, and the kids growing up. I wonder that that sense of not belonging, what impact that has on, on love and your close relationships. Well, I'm single. <laughs> so there you go. That's 
it, I mean, yeah, you've hit the well. You haven't hit the nail on the head because you weren't assuming anything. But you've you've hit on the sort of the the big thing really, which is I have I wasn't capable actually of even building meaningful friendships in my twenties. I don't have very many friends from that time in my life. Not because I was a nasty person, but I didn't have the skills required to connect. I don't think. And I look back at how I was, and and I say that you know my son, you know, when he struggles sometimes socially, and he assumes I don't because now I don't seem to. And I said, oh no, in my twenties. I had no clue what I was doing or how to do any of the things you're doing. And I think, and he is, you know, he's far more skilled as an autistic 25-year-old than I was as a neurotypical 25-year-old, for sure. I've managed to learn as I've gone through life to create intimate relationships that last and to contribute to them. So my, I've got incredibly sort of close, intimate friendships. I have a great relationship with my children. But yeah, the, 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 the big one, um, I, I really struggle with that. And I, I've under, I understand more and more as I've got older that there is a reason that I'm single. I've had you know long-term meaningful relationships. I'm not someone who's sort of jumped from lily pad to lily pad every six months. Not that there's anything wrong if, if I was, but yeah, a, a sort of serial monogamist who's lost the ones I didn't want to lose and then dumped the ones who wanted me. And um, that probably lots of people listening will relate to that. So I, I'm that's that's something at the moment. I, I'm taking um, a deliberate, a proper deliberate sabbatical from dating at the moment. I, I decided as of January this year that not forever at all, but at the moment I'm just working on what might be going on in that regard and how I might honestly be all right to actually get into something that lasts. So yeah, it's 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 had everything to do with why I am not in a settled relationship. I would say. And I wonder as well, do you, I, mean, I can't remember, we talked about this last time we spoke, but the, the Robin inside you of the the tears of a clown or the idea that actually many comedians will have something that, that drives them or something that, that, that yearning for connection. Do you buy into that? Completely. I mean, what I, what I think, um, Angela Barnes uh, talks really interestingly about this and she's talked very openly about her own, she, she and I have had not dissimilar, not just that we're ginger female comedians, but we've had not dissimilar sort of um, kind of processes at different times in our lives. I think about how we felt about some things and where we have coped and not coped and how we felt about ourselves. And it is a weird thing with comedy because you've got to have enough confidence or attention-seeking genes to want to get up on a stage and go, look at me, look at me, look at me. I mean, we can't deny that is what we're doing but also enough kind of insecurity to need to do it in that incredible, what a weird thing to do. I mean, who who wants to stand in a room facing the wrong way, relying on other people to affirm or, or annihilate you? So, and I definitely think, I don't know many comedians, I know some, I don't know many comedians who are balanced, sorted, fulfilled, rounded people. I think I love comedians and I, I some of the most... Yeah, I think comedians, well, they're very funny, obviously, but really clever. Like, it really upped my game in terms of cleverness when I became a comedian. I was like, wow, these people are massively clever. Um, they're not just good on stage. But yeah, I think absolutely. I think um, if you have if you haven't had a tough paper round, why would you be a comedian? It doesn't make any sense. It, it, why would you pick that path? It's not a logical path to pick. I like the idea of a tough paper round. It's a very sort of British euphemistic way to describe it. Exactly. Try explaining that. Try explaining that to your Danish friends, Helen. Good luck with that. (laughs) What what is this about paper? Um, And now I wanted to also ask about the idea of the U-shaped curve. I've been quite interested in this. I am now, I guess, in the pit of the curve. This idea of this U-shaped happiness curve, where which I found out about in your book, Helen. So it was your book. Oh, good. That's how I found out about it. Was reading your amazing book. Yes. Thank you. But um, now, so then statistically, you should be on your way out of it 
Do you, how's that feeling? Is it all towards the glory? Completely. Oh. I mean, literally, Good. the reason it resonated so much when I read it, I was like, that's literally me. So I, I literally remember, so my 40s were not good and they got harder and harder and harder and then a little bit better than at their very worst. So from 47 to 49, there was a slight improvement with some, but definitely a sore, a, what's it called? You know, when you have this, the sore's shape thing you know it goes up and down oh like jagged yeah the jaggedy yeah. Sort. serrated yeah, yeah there's a anyway there's a whatever that thing is that somebody more articulate <laughs> than me would know how to say um the sawtooth pattern but when I I wasn't bothered really about turning 50 I was a bit preoccupied with it but I wasn't that bothered about it and and I didn't really want to do much about it I wasn't gonna really do a party I didn't really I was trying to be like Ugh. and the kids arranged the most lovely it was low-key it was here it was I don't know like 30 people they invited just people they knew that I knew and it was completely uncurated as it would be by um it was them and their little brother who arranged it all and he was uh six at the time so his choice of guest list was uh, was basically his mum and my cat uh so so we had that that lovely unexpected thing and it was just low-key and wonderful and I literally went to bed that night feeling just different and sort of like what was I so scared of? And I woke up the next day feeling like um, I'd taken a rucksack off my back. I don't know why. I think it may be because it's such a sort of spectre for women when they think about 50 and you do get told you'll be invisible and it'll be this and it'll be that. And I woke up the next day and I went for a really long run. I was like, oh, well, I can still run. And I think I still look the same as I did yesterday. And it's been, I cannot tell you how much better my 50s have been. And given I'm 53 and most of my 50s have been the pandemic, that does tell you how much that happiness curve might have something in it. And I honestly, that I know I keep banging on about the puppy, it's because it's like I just have a, you know, when someone's just had a baby and they won't stop talking about the baby. But honestly, at the moment, the, 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 some of the sort of pure happiness I have at the moment, and it, it's, I don't think I've felt like that. It almost feels like a childlike level of happiness and sort of unjadedness. So I, I don't really know what to put it down to, but it, definitely feels like that is there's something in that and perhaps particularly because we as women are so conditioned to think oh we're hurtling towards the edge of a cliff at 50 and I promise you we are not we are we so are not I feel in every way so much better and you know when people say to me well you don't seem like a 50 year old woman or you don't look like a 50 year old woman I say go and meet some more 50 year old women because I do this is what 50 year old women are like you know I'm nothing special at all you know we're out do what we want to do and and it's you know we're at the I I will accept that I'm maybe at the halfway point in my life but I will not accept I'm any further than that so I've got it all to play for 106 fair play yeah for sure. I love that idea of the rucksack because you look about 35 so once I take my rucksack of stress <laughs> off it's going to be brilliant this is great I Aww. look about 35 today because I haven't had time to put any makeup on so I look childlikely <laughs> <laughs> unmade up yes but the unalloyed joy of of puppy play I do think there's something really interesting in animals bringing out something different in us that yeah it's just joyful do you know that literally when I was thinking about whether I could or couldn't get a puppy and I did spend quite a few months deciding to, to whether to get one or not I didn't just sort of see one and go oh, I'd like a puppy and honestly one of the things I realized Michael Rosen's bought, wrote that brilliant book about play I can't remember what it's called but anyway people can, can look it up and we just we lose the art of play and I I've not I never was that playful as a mum either I was I was kind and I read stories and but I wasn't a, like let's just get down on the floor and muck about and I literally thought, if I get a puppy, I am going to have to play. Like, you you have to play with puppies several times a day. And I honestly thought, Helen, I'm going to find that so hard because I am not a get down on the floor and play kind of a woman. 
I cannot tell you how much I resent anything that stops me being allowed to play with my puppy. I'm like, oh, I've got to go and, <laughs> go and do some work for money now. And all I want to do is like muck about. And I, yeah, and I don't think I've played as much as this since I was a child. Or actually, do you know what? We, you do a day of play at the Hoffman where it's all about reconnecting with your childhood. I'd never played much, even as a child. So honestly, you've hit the nail on the head uh, and you're very present when you're playing. I mean, honestly, mucking about with a dog, it's just the best thing. I probably am going to be unemployed, bankrupt, destitute, but I will love my dog. I think that's <laughs> where we're so going. so happy though. <laughs> oh, they just need dogs on the Hoffman. That's what they need. Do you know, there were and dogs. It's funny you say that though. Oh, wow, I missed, really? Well, they don't have them on the Hoffman, but I, because I, I always love animals so much. I've always had animals and I love animals. It's no surprise how much I love animals. And when we were there, we didn't see any, because there were no animals either. And then there was um, somebody who lived on, on in the grounds of where the place was who had a dog. And I used to watch them and their dog and just think, what wouldn't I give to just cuddle that dog? I want. I actually missed animals more than people on the Hoffman. So there you go. Interesting. So do you think there's something then in the genes that your son is? Is he a zoologist? He's a zookeeper. He's a primate keeper a at Payton Zoo in Devon. Yeah. Oh, I I used to, I used to go to Exeter University, so Payton Zoo was. A big uh, well, he lives in Exeter, and a lot of his oh. mates went to Exeter University, so that's kind of why he's also down there because he has a network of. And so there you go. You see, you and my son have got some stuff in common. Oh, and do you think? Was there sort of a love of animals growing up? Is there something that you have fostered or is it just in him, do you think? It's definitely in him. I think he's more like his dad than me. Although if you saw his dad with my cat or my dog, you'd be like, that is definitely, he did not become a zookeeper because his dad, his dad's not really an animal person. I think uh, it's probably definitely, I mean, I was brought up in the countryside. My son spent a lot of his holidays and half turns with my mum and dad in rural Dorset. He always loved it. Like he never wanted to live in London, whereas my daughter was like, bring it on, you know, teenager in Camden. All my son wanted to do was go and be in the countryside. But it's, it's his autism. It's his special interest. So most autistic kids develop an encyclopedic knowledge of the thing they most love. And in his case, it was always anything to do with animals and in particular primates. So he became incredibly knowledgeable about monkeys and apes from extremely young. But whereas many little kids will be running around London thinking, I'm going to be a zookeeper at 18 months or two. Mine did do that. And then you try getting between an autistic kid and his dreams that was what he was going to do so yeah he's literally got the job of his dreams he's a zookeeper and he's also an educational um specialist so two days a week he does the talks for schools and people who want to be a zookeeper for a day and I can assure you as someone who's been taken to many zoos with my son he does have a lot of information to uh, disseminate and I'm quite glad that there are now people paying to hear it it's not just you <laughs> it's yeah. not just me anymore I'm also quite knowledgeable Helen about primates as you'll imagine a lot yeah, of second <laughs> yeah you told me some monkey facts last time we spoke I think and um how is it when they left home I mean how terrifying is that that moment when suddenly the house is silent it's devastating and I think it, it comes to you if you're lucky in stages because one of your kids will probably leave home before the other I know you've got twins uh, your first one's twins no, my eldest is is uh, three years older. Yeah, so you'll have the... Because if, if you only had twins, that must be one hell of a thing as well because you lose them in one go. So you will have a sort of staggered version of it, although you, obviously you don't know at what age each kid will do what. My, my kids ended up actually doing landmark things at the same time. So my kids finally permanently both left home last September so my son got his job at the zoo and my daughter got the keys to her place in Madrid and it was the same week that they were fully gone having gone through study and you know so it does take a while coming 
And my son, you know, he only left home at 24, but he'd gone in between, he'd gone to study and he, you know, he'd come and he'd gone. And my daughter, sadly, at 18, went to study abroad and has never, has never come back. But I mean, she does come back to visit, we get on, but she's never lived back here. I, I googled, when I, when I came back from dropping my daughter in Amsterdam when she was 18, and it is quite young, 18, isn't it? I just, she's half Dutch, so I thought she'd be fine. And then I was like, oh my God. Yeah. And they don't have like a campus over there. It's not like a campus uni and fresh as we get, you're very much on your own working it out. The journey home, the drive home was like the longest drive ever, driving back to London. I mean, it is a long drive, to be fair. And then literally I felt like someone had died and I couldn't go into her bedroom because I was too devastated. I went onto the online grocery shopping and all the favourites were things she liked. I, My son at the time was, I think he was off either working or studying. He wasn't at home. And it was just... It was just awful. I mean, I properly felt like someone had died uh, and it was proper grief. And you do go, and I Googled, is emptiness like grief? And it does say you do go through the cycles of grief. And it was, um, I've got, you know, you have people in your life who are your unofficial spiritual advisors. And I've got a few of those, like lovely people who are just your people. And my osteopath, who has helped me out of many a scrape, and I absolutely love him, Ron. I went to see him and of course, you know, I was like, I've got something wrong with my shoulder and I think it was clear it wasn't really my shoulder. I was just really upset. And he said, um, I said, I'm just really struggling, Ron. And he knows my kids, you know, he's seen me with them since they were tiny. And I said, there's no one there. And I opened the door and there's nobody there. He said, you're there, you're there. And I sort of forgotten, I had forgotten <laughs> that I'm also, a per- you know, and it's, it was quite helpful actually, because I thought it isn't, there isn't nobody here. It is, I'm here. And that was quite important to sort of occupy the space and remember that I count for something and I'm a beating heart and, and the house isn't empty. But if I'm honest, it's only been six months since they left. I have never felt better about emptiness than since, not just, I'm not going to just keep banging on about the puppy. The other good thing though about the puppy is everybody wants to come see the puppy and my son's yes. friends, many of whom still live near here because they're his school friends and we still live where he went to school and most of whom are now animal behaviourists or zookeepers, <laughs> they all come and stay and want to look after the puppy and hang out. So I've literally, and the kids keep visiting, I've had just a house full of people staying, wanting to eat their meals. It's just been wonderful. So I actually feel like I've just basically made everyone come back with a massive, cute, furry bribe. So um, nice. I, <laughs> I haven't really worked out the mental side of it. I've just come up with a very practical solution, which is make <laughs> everyone come back. A cute furry magnet, yes, for people coming. <laughs> I mean, back. if it was my podcast, I'd make lots of jokes about that. Oh, as it's not, oh, I will God. be respectful. Yeah. I'll be oh, respectful dear. of yours. But that's interesting, isn't it? That's like a kind of profound. That's another profound change, isn't it? It's a. It's it's the next stage of life, and it's a. You get to be about you again. It's and it is brilliant in that regard. You know, I had my kids in my twenties, and so I was a fairly young kind of um, empty nester. But, and, and that is amazing. And I, I do definitely, I go out, you know, I'm not very rarely am I sitting on my sofa, not least because of my job. So I, it's not that I'm not doing lovely, interesting, fun things. So there is that. But if I'm, I don't know, this is maybe a really, I don't know if this is a good thing to say or not, but it's true for me. I loved nurturing and I loved babies and I loved toddlers and I did love mumming, not all the time because it's incredibly difficult, but I just loved it. Or mumming, parenting, you know. And I found it incredibly sad, you know, for women, you know, that's menopause is, you know, it's a big thing, isn't it? You, you're you're mourning the loss of many, many things and both literally and metaphorically. And it, it did feel like, you know, like grief. It's a big, big, big thing. And um, I'm sure I'm very aware there was a single mum uh, in an empty nest. 
I would far sooner be a single mum in an empty nest than someone in an unhappy marriage in an empty nest. I've also got friends who are very unhappy with their partners and now no one's there apart from their partner. So I do rejoice that I'm not with someone I don't want to be with because that's about as lonely as it gets. So um, so yeah, me, my cat, my dog and many, many visitors, Helen. And I'm starting to feel what approximates some kind of um, contentment nice. again. I think that's a very helpful message in terms of of yes accepting that it's grief and sharing that thank you very much for being honest about that I would love to end by asking knowing all that you know now I guess both personally and professionally what advice would you give your 21 year old self about how to be sad well it would be acknowledging to myself that when I am sad when I was sad at 21 and then daring to let people into that and realizing that by letting people into your sadness and your vulnerability you are making yourself very often much more appealing and easy to love so what may keep you from that is a conviction that you are unlovable and if you let yourself be seen no one will stay around but very frequently if human beings let themselves be seen and let their true selves be seen that's extremely appealing um, flaws and all so I would say um, yeah let, let let people into the authentic you and you might be surprised at how well that goes that's wonderful thank you so so much thank you so much for listening today check out the show notes for more about where to find Callie what she's up to next and her upcoming projects and her fantastic podcast where I've also been a guest the book how to be sad is out now in paperback wherever you get your books and if you enjoyed this episode please do rate review subscribe tell your friends it really helps us get more great guests until next time I hope you're doing okay and take care